Hello everybody, welcome to today's Dharma Toolkit Daily from the Buddha Centre Online team. With me, your host, Chandra Dasa, today again on my lonesome. We've had a bit of a dearth of co-hosts this week, but not a dearth of excellent guests. And today is no different. We're going to have a conversation based entirely in the USA between two coasts, two time zones, the East Coast in New York City and the West Coast in San Francisco. I'll introduce you to our guests in just a little minute. And we're going to be talking about, I suppose, the mythic way into the times, using our radical imaginations to reimagine the world in a way, which is somewhat forced upon us by circumstance. Before we get into the conversation, I'm just going to do a rare wee plug on this podcast. You may have noticed, if you're podcast listeners in general, as I am, that we haven't attempted to sell you socks or any kind of service (laughs) at the start of this. And rest assured, dear listener, we are not about to start. However, I do want to tell you that this week we are running on thebuddhistcentre.com slash toolkit, a home retreat, which is really just a fancy way of saying we've provided a whole bunch of excellent Buddhist resources that might help you through the ups and downs of being stuck at home, whatever your circumstance, and whether you have lots of time to engage with such things or just need a little bit of structure and bookending for your day, there's probably something there that will help. So please check it out at thebuddhacentercom slash toolkit. You'll see a link at the top to the home retreat. It's called Sailing the Worldly Winds. And it's a beautiful image for what we're doing at the moment. So I'm going to sail some hundreds of miles up the east coast of the US where I'm based to New York City to say hello to the first guest who is Upaya Dee. And it was Upaya Dee's idea to do this podcast so I'll let her say hello and maybe say a little bit about her way in. How are you doing today Upaya Dee? Hey Chandrasa, I figured you might ask that question. <laughs> I confess to some anticipatory dread, actually. And I know you really mean it, which is, yeah, how we ask each other how we're doing among spiritual friends. And I'm also noticing in our culture, I think a lot of people notice this about Americans, often say, how you doing? And it's both a question and not really a question, sort of a stand-in for hello. And I'm just observing around me as the days and weeks have gone by, at least in my context here in New York, people are not using that question anymore (laughs) as much because I don't speak for everyone, but I think a lot of people are quite dumbfounded and what's unfolding is of such a magnitude to be present to, let alone absorb individually and collectively that we just sort of look at each other on our screens and either radiate love or weep together. (laughs) And so I'm a lot of things. I'm a lot of things. Or as a friend of mine said the other day, feeling a lot of feels, trying to just allow them to move through the body, feeling sometimes on fire with the Dharma, incredibly awake to what's happening. And yeah, often very tenderized and deeply, deeply concerned. I think because it's April 3rd, and I don't know when people will hear this, but people might be wondering since they're aware that New York City is the epicenter of the outbreak right now in the US, it might be worth at least just saying I'm okay physically. As far as we know, we've been keeping in close contact and connection here in New York. As far as we know, everyone in our Sangha is okay with brackets. Like most New Yorkers, we have many of us, friends, relatives, colleagues who are not okay, or in some cases who have passed already. And that's just increasingly a statistical reality as this progresses. So, but right this moment, I'm delighting in being in your good company. 
It's very delightful to have you join us, particularly in the midst of so much in a way that could properly occupy anybody's attention. Podcasts maybe seem a little bit slight. We were saying this yesterday with people talking about the situation in India, that we're hoping to get some conversations going with folk in India, but actually the far more important things to do than appear on this podcast at the moment. So we'll zoom over to the West Coast before we get the conversation going properly to our friend Viveka, who is in San Francisco, not as early in the morning as we might have made her talk, but still relatively early in the morning. So we're grateful that she's shown up to say hello. Hello. Yeah, it's good to be with you, two old friends. So maybe the bright side of being in this condition is that we get to connect more than we might otherwise, I think, for some folks. So it's nice to see you. I've been in a lot of contact with the piety and people on the East Coast. So it's quite typical for me to be in this kind of bi-coastal consciousness. And I've also very consciously reached out to friends in other countries just to see how they're doing. And I suppose it's a solidarity practice now. Yeah, a bit of solidarity practice. And it's quite interesting to be straddling the two coasts because there is a, a very different vibe in every part of the world. We hear that. I'm originally from New Jersey, right outside of New York. So I do feel part of my, uh, as a diasporic person, someone who's family has traveled the globe. I do feel myself in different parts of the world. Yeah. And so the New York governor suggested that we could, as a nation, all give our attention to the places where the virus is most active. And in that way, join together and we could all move around to where all our attention is most needed, whether that's physically or probably more so energetically, possibly even you know, with dollars or mutual aid. So yeah, some part of my psyche is very much with the people of New York and around the globe as well. You were mentioning our friends in India. Yeah, it was very striking yesterday having a conversation with people working with NGOs on the ground in India and just hearing the scale. I've had a sense all through the week in these conversations that people in various different countries are bracing for something, but the scale that they're bracing for in India and the slums particularly is almost unimaginable. It's just so huge. And it was impressive to hear people talk about the amount of forethought that was already going into not just the immediacy of the problem, the following stage, but also the long-term. What does long-term recovery even look like in imagination in that situation? So it was certainly good to be reminded to turn my own mind away, even from the low-level emergency that's happening around here. So in a way, I think that how you both said hello introduces something about your friendship together, which I was interested in. This is one of the first things, Zupaydi, you suggested when you came up with the theme, and then you said it'd be good to have this conversation with Viveka. Maybe you could just say to people what your friendship with Viveka means and why she was another doorway into the mythic realm of radical imagination when you thought about it. It's a tender question because I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think there's many Vivekas in my experience, and there's mythic dimensions of Viveka, and lovely, delicious, ordinary ones, and everything in between. So Viveka holds a special place in my life as my preceptor. She chose my name. My name is Upayadi, Upaya meaning skillful means, and D being the seed syllable of wisdom. And so you could understand that as she who has skillful means and wisdom, I like to add on her better days. And so one of the questions that's alive for me right now is how do I live into that name in this moment, which is, you know, both an acknowledgement of what my preceptor sees in me, but mostly of what's emergent, my potential, my ability to be of service uh, right now. So I feel quite in strong connection with my preceptor in that sense. She's a teacher and a friend to many, and I feel very blessed to know her. 
and to spend some time on retreat together, some good time, drawing upon a lot of the wisdom well of that experience, coming back to it. I don't know if I'm making much sense because <laughs> I get quite emotional talking about people I love. <laughs> Thanks for that, Heidi. And you mentioning your name reminds me of the process of finding something that reflected you in a name, that process. And when I think of your name now, I just think of you like, what's your superpowers? You know, I feel like it's a time in the world where I'm wanting to bring that gaze to how I see other people. I'm not saying that that means that people can't be vulnerable or tender, which is also, I think, a great human superpower is our potential to be real. Um, and maybe that's what Buddhism is really asking us to be real, our greatest superpower of all. <laughs> but I like imagining you in, in some of the Buddhist iconography. We have images of people with a thousand arms, you know, each arm has a different implement. We were reflecting on this image when we were reflecting on your name together. So I like imagining you with many, many implements. And right now you have a very cool 1930s looking microphone as one of them. <laughs> One thing I've enjoyed about our friendship recently is Piety is in seminary. So she's with a lot of theologians every day and her school union in New York is very socially engaged. So that's been part of the kind of conversations we've been having is expanding our mind to very profound and practical alternate ways we could be living in this world. So I appreciate that. Very beautiful to witness you two rejoicing in each other across the miles. So Piety, this was something that immediately came up as a suggestion when you signed up for the podcast, the idea of radical imagination, anticipatory communities, ways into the mythic aspect of general practice and the practice specific to these times. Uh, so what was it for you that in a way sparked off that topic when you thought about what you'd like to explore in response to the coronavirus crisis? There's so much to harvest in our tradition from a mythic perspective that might be able to at least help me hold what's happening. And over and over again, I can feel in the in the vibrations in my own body, this difficulty of being with so much grief and anticipatory grief and great concern for many beings well beyond the United States, well, well beyond. You mentioned India already a few times since we've started. And Imaginatively, I return often to the image of Avalokiteshvara, famous bodhisattva who made this vow to alleviate the suffering of all beings. And in hearing the cries of the world over lifetimes and lifetimes and aeons, at a certain point is just so brokenhearted, Avalokiteshvara implodes or explodes into thousands of pieces with the impossibility of the task. And I'm, you know, I identify strongly with that. And in the story, this beautiful red Buddha, Amitabha, which is part of a framework we call the five Buddha mandala, appears and slowly, lovingly puts Avalokiteshvara back together again, still shattered, but whole in a whole new way with thousands of arms and many more heads and implements. And one of the things I love about that image is that Avalokiteshvara is still broken, right? It's coming from a place of brokenness. And yet it's also deeply relational. So how can we be Amitabha to each other right now is a big question. And how can we allow for each other to be shattered and experience the shattering nature of what's happening and love each other back into life and back into efficacy to rise to the moment? I resonate strongly with that. So already both of you I'm noticing as I listen this morning, you have invoked this edge of what we feel like we can be with or even imagine. Chandra Dasa, you talked about 
how the scale of suffering is unimaginable, almost unimaginable from the piety of you know, reaching the limits of what one knows how to do. Yeah, and I think that's what draws me to this conversation because that place at the edge of possibility, it feels impossible. You know, it's, it's considered in many you know, myths of our ancestry, a very rich place. Yeah, like the human story doesn't stop there. Even in this image where this figure, this mythical figure gets put back together again with many arms and many heads to rise again, yeah. I've been interested in this just because I've already been in conversations with communities. My work is with social justice activists, or just, you could say plain folk. Maybe that sounds too complicated. Plain folks who in their communities see a need for creating a more kind society where everyone can thrive, you know, and we're not there yet. So they already know that and they've felt that for a long time. So I guess, you know, I appreciate you. I think part of our friendship, Piety, is you being honest about your locatedness and relating from understanding that you do have a certain social set of conditions you know so a lot of the folks I'm around are not in very privileged conditions or they purposefully move out of that isolation of privileged conditions to bond and work with others towards a transformed world so as I've been on phone calls with them this week yeah I've heard quotes like this is a moment we've been training for we're ready it doesn't mean that people have the answers or that there's not going to be a lot of distress, but just what's being called for us is something people have practiced for. And I feel very moved by that. And there's a strength in that, that I've really been wanting to notice and appreciate and participate in. So there's a quote that's normally on my wall, and it's from Grace Lee Boggs, who was a Chinese American activist in Detroit who um, passed not too long ago. And she found common cause with a lot of Black activists. You know, at the time, Black Panther Party was active around and influential around the country. And she has this quote. So we could say from the 60s, this is a quote that could equally apply now. Yeah? And she says, a revolution that is based on the people exercising their creativity in the midst of devastation is one of the great historical contributions of humankind. Grace Lee Boggs, movement elder, social movement elder. So... This is a great time to bring that out to the fore more. When we spoke the other day talking about this podcast, I found myself thinking afterwards about the whole nature of anticipatory communities and something you'd said to Piety in conversation. I think you just touched on it there, Viveka, about it's not as if somebody somewhere has got all the answers and there's someone else we can look to just to solve our problem for us, as it were. What is the experience of people from other kinds of communities working with anticipatory dread and anxiety and the kinds of things that basically any plain folk, any plain person could relate to in their own experience, particularly if they've been dealing with injustice and being on the kind of fringes of privilege in the past? A bright spot or something I find really hopeful and a place of leadership is to connect the first thing is to connect in that. So I think there can be a lot of isolation and distress. So you know, there's people that really their day-to-day is exhausting to navigate. And even in that, there's a kind of consciousness raising process that can happen. So I think the Dharma Buddhism tries to get people rolling on this, you know, to say, hey, there is suffering. What causes that? Can we imagine that there's a possibility of of not just recreating that and creating something else that actually is a place where there's liberation or freedom. So there's a multi-generational liberation movement. And I would love to think of Buddhism as being part of that and, and continuing to evolve itself alongside other energies like that. Also in the smallest ways, I'm also impressed about this kind of practice, what I would call simultaneity. I don't know if everyone would call it that, but 
not only is liberation possible, but how can we start now is one thing I've been a student of, right? So there's this idea of a more connected society where we don't just live in a society where we're okay with some people, quite a lot of people being on the margins out of the range of care and consideration. And in the small stack, I notice when I've gotten on the phone with people that I work with, people saying to me, to that question of how are you, much more precisely, do you have what you need? How is your income? Are, are your people okay? I mean, they're much more connected questions and they're prepared to do something about it. I also see, for example, one of the communities I'm in is also a community working to end gender-based violence. They already had a mission. They were challenging themselves to end gender-based violence within 30 years. So that's their consciousness. How can we do that? And I noticed in that community, for people that are subject to gender-based violence, they often need an alternative plan, right? Like if something gets violent at home, which is starting to happen potentially more now, there's concern about that. How can we look out for each other? So just yes, things like that, this already a readiness to do that, you know, to imagine a world free of violence. Um, so they're exercising their imagination already. So they exercise their imagination or there's a call to exercise your imagination regularly, which I feel like, you know, maybe not all of us have the benefit of being called to that all the time. I really appreciate that. One other community I really want to shout out now is the environmental justice community, which is a community that's been noticing already how disregard for the environment really takes away the conditions we need to survive, you know, as human beings. And they've been calling this out for a long time because they've been situated next to toxic sites, you know, waste sites, toxic energy sites. And they actually at the World Social Forum many years ago, they came up with an organizing principle, another world is possible. So you can imagine trying to organize huge numbers of people around another world as possible. So it's like a deep, deep form of resilience that I feel like we can all learn from. Hearing that another world is possible, I wonder how people are listening to this podcast respond to that. You know, so I wonder if people would just stop and notice, because I do think that's interesting what stops us from engaging with that. And so I would just be curious about that. And yeah, I think that that can actually drive us to incredibly practical responses now. So what I see it does is it takes me out of helplessness and inertia. So, you know, a lot of what's also being practiced now in those communities is to notice our more primary survival responses that can drive us towards fight, flight, freeze, dissociate, or submit. And I think all of us should actually really get curious about that because it's very likely that all these things will be triggered. So how can we notice that and tend to those responses? And this is a call to be more centered and grounded and also have your eyes on the horizon, have your eyes panoramically now and on the horizon. And what I also see is if we know where we're going, then all our actions today can be guided by that. So then there's a lot of very practical implications of that from as I say, very practically, these are the people that have the most mutual aid information coming out very quickly. So it's not just like, oh, one day we will live in, I don't know what, some unrealistic place. I mean, I actually, I want to challenge what's realistic because we're told what's not realistic all the time as a way of promoting the status quo. So I would really like everyone to wake up right now to what blocks that. And yeah, what you see is people organize mutual aid. There's people I know that are unemployment insurance advocates who right away as our federal government was coming up with a relief package, were able to advocate for low-income workers. They were ready with policy solutions. I'm just talking about immediate things that are happening. There are people who are coming up with the health insurance kinds of things that are happening for workers. Even though we have the benefits coming, people don't know how to access them. They're translating things across different languages. They already have those networks. So there's this 
Amazing thing. I feel like it's a great lesson. I really think we should be looking to these people for a lot more leadership. <laughs> yeah. And this thing about how can we start now, but also not just in a panic response, but have in mind a just loving world that we're moving towards, guiding all our actions. It's so beautifully clear. What else to do other than wake up? Rumi's poem, you know, rendered by Coleman Barks with that line, don't go back to sleep. Don't go back to sleep. I think of my life just a month ago and I, you know, it's like, I was so asleep. <laughs> I mean, part of that pertains again to my privileged position in society. Let's be clear. I was inspired actually for myself even and for people around me to you know what letters do we want to write to our future selves, assuming we make it out of this, you know, assuming we have the blessing to continue to walk the earth because things are so clear right now, so vivid. How can we live, at least how can I live from that place on an ongoing basis, not just the kind of burst of sort of forced insight <laughs> due to circumstance? I was really struck coming back to another aspect of the mythic context, which is the story of the Buddha's life. One thing you pointed out to me, Vivek, in our prior conversation was how wealth isolates by nature, certainly in our culture and the way our economy is organized. That's part of the Buddha's story too, <laughs> being isolated as a prince. And I'm not sure I would feel comfortable saying that I'm wealthy, but as a, you know, white middle-class educated person in this country with health insurance, there's ways in which I'm habitually isolated just by virtue of that, even though I might be tapped into a spiritual community for which I'm incredibly grateful. And I have to say, you know, shout out to New York, <laughs> Tri Ratna. It's been beautiful to see the Sangha, the order come together and quickly organize, including in very practical material ways. We've got a fundraiser going to help people who are in immediate need of financial support, who've lost employment as a result of this. And we rapidly, completely reorganized, changed our programming to ramp up and just be available, calling on people, checking on each other. You know, we're a wee sangha. So in a way, we were agile and able to do that relatively easily. And, and certainly practicing together through technology was not new for us. So we had that that we could build on. But yeah, having worked in the luxury industry for many years, you know, I'm painfully aware that there was a growing market these past few years of luxury bunkers where people could literally hide away preparing for the end of times, right? So they're doing anticipatory organizing in quite a different way. And on the other extreme of that, um, I'm so humbled and learning and feel so inspired to just get a glimpse of a glimpse of what Vivek is describing in my seminary community. And in this, somehow I stumbled into this private Facebook group with about 6,000 clergy members, ministers, pastors, priests, rabbis, imams, you name it, all different traditions spread out all over, not just in the U.S., but primarily in the U.S. and Canada helping each other out in very practical ways. And to Viveka's point, definitely clear leadership in terms of expertise, experience, knowing what foot to put in front of the other, coming from the most marginalized communities, the folks who already, in order to worship safely with the bodies that they inhabit, were already well-tooled, equipped to make this big switch. And then the impulse to help others across traditions has just been absolutely amazing and makes me reflect on my own location in that and what I take for granted. Yeah, Piety, when we were talking about coming out of isolation, you know, the invitation to come out of isolation, that was one thing that did really linger with me after our conversations. And it made me reflect on a term that 
we've been using in some social organizing contexts about radical imagination. And the term radical is reflecting on what's radical. Coming out of isolation is one way we could look at what's radical. You know, and actually, sometimes Buddhism talks about the goal in very kind of abstract terms, like non-duality might be a term that gets bandied around, you know. But in the most immediate way, I was thinking about what might that vision of liberation be calling for that actually can start right now, that shift that we can start with now. And it feels to me that's one way of looking at it, just coming out of isolation. One of the meditation practices a lot of people have been finding helpful, and that includes some folks I know that are working in social contexts and trying to build community who are not, don't consider themselves Buddhists at all. And they've been finding this meditation of Tonglen really helpful. And in this meditation, rather than trying to turn away from suffering or gate ourselves from it, we connect first with the quality of openness and the willingness to be in the fullness of experience, that quality of openness. And then we actually imagine the heart center being this place of deep connection. And in that connection, inherently healing, you could say one way of interpreting the practice. And we breathe in pain and suffering um, within this larger awareness of connection. And when we breathe out, there's this healing moonlight energy that goes out into the world. And so many people have found this practice really helpful for these times. And so there isn't a, a mythic enactment that's going on there. It's very different than the kind of hero savior image, actually. It's about connection. I mean, I think sometimes the practice gets misunderstood you know, that I am going to sit here and singly metabolize the suffering of the world, but it's actually a move towards connection. And in that, there's this healing property that comes from that, you know, in the outbreath, every outbreath. So I've been struck by that. I'd love to speak to. Tonglen, because I've never done as much Tonglen in my life as now. It's been <laughs> quite an experience, but I want to come back to the radical imagination theme for a moment on a few different levels. Certainly in my seminary community across different wisdom, faith traditions, and the larger Buddhist Sangha that I'm part of, we talk a lot about the challenge to moral imagination and how the hold that our extractive capitalist economies structures have is not just a material one, but also a, a grip on our imaginations. That is part of the big con. We are actually making this up. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, all of a sudden all these countries in distress can somehow magically print money and inject it into the economy. And, you know, there's part of me going, well, wait a minute, why, why only now, <laughs> right? Why only now is access to testing free as opposed to you know, it's certainly in this country, access to any kind of testing required free for everybody at all times. You know, all of a sudden, the unimaginable in dominant political discourse here becomes imaginable and actually not just imaginable, but immediately operational. So it's these moments where this trance of relating to capitalism in its darkest forms as if it were, you know, the best we can do is make it less painful. We can maybe put some padding and some band-aids and sort of work around it. But in truth, a lot of us are relating to it, certainly in this country, as at least it's a dominant theme. It's not the whole story, but there is this strong hold of these views, actually these collective views where people might be relating to our economic structures, our systems, as obvious as gravity, as unquestionable as gravity. And what else is possible? And it's hard to hold at the same time that this moment where all of a sudden, you know, this virus is fundamentally anti-capitalist, right? It's also, unfortunately, 
giving rise to its own form of capitalism. And some people are talking about Corona capitalism and we're kind of seeing the worst and the best, but just in the mere fact of just being able to, hey, pause, stop. We can't live like this right now for life and death reasons opens up possibility at a micro level of my own life. I think, why on earth did I have so many plans to begin with? (laughs) But also at a much larger scale, my sincere wish is that we perhaps come out of this with certain things like, oh, access to healthcare just being non-questionable anymore, that that's not debatable. May it not be debatable anymore in the way it is now. May we also bring into being a new story, new stories. We talk about the mythic context. There's also unhelpful mythologies. And certainly in our culture, right, there's the mythology of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, that's not really going to be how we're going to get out of this, (laughs) actually. And by the way, was that ever true to begin with? So I can even take that to heart in my own life. What are my personal unhelpful mythologies that I need to own up to in this moment? And, you know, one of them is, as Viveka knows this ode too well, I'm inadequate. You know, I need like 20 more years of training and intense psychotherapy (laughs) for whatever, fill in the blank. And what's incredibly liberating in this moment, even though it's coming along with so much pain and suffering, is there's no time for that. Yes, I'm inadequate. And so what? Time to get back to work and figure out how I can be of use right now. And all of a sudden, it appears very bourgeois and self-cherishing to be concerned about not doing a good job. I like what you said there, Upayadis, in terms of it made me immediately think of the virus as the guru, dissolving all conceptions, all obstacles, all prefabrications. It's kind of amazing. Can I just riff on that for a moment? Because I think I think what's so interesting in seeing the virus as guru, and there's been some amazing poetry actually around this theme of actually entering a conversation with the virus at a mythic theopoetic discourse to receive the wisdom that's on offer from what's happening, even though it's coming with such an incredible path of destruction. And there's this other language we have in Buddhism around the poisons, right? The poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion which are also on on full display. And some are feeling that more than others. So I think of my friends who are Chinese American or of Asian descent or Asians in the US have to deal with not only the virus, right? But how when they're moving through public spaces, they're not having the same experience as me. And we're hearing, you know, a lot of really absolutely heartbreaking reports, microaggressions, and in some cases worse. I really appreciate you naming that. Piety and may not be obvious to listeners, but I am of Chinese descent. And yeah, quoting Grace Lee Boggs earlier, she's one of my movement elders, also someone I connect with as an Asian American activist. I just want to say I really appreciate that about you, that that you care about that and you are concerned by seeing this anti-Asian racism. So yeah, thank you for that solidarity. And I feel a solidarity of people caring and saying this is not the kind of society we want will actually help to protect us all. You know, there's a lot of training we can draw on, which is taking adversity as a path. You know, there's a whole tradition of that. I mean, a couple of things are coming to mind, kind of holding the both and, right? So this has been in a lot of conversations I've been in, is being able to hold the both and of the urgent crisis and being able to respond in ways that are calling for our attention. But also the longer term adaptation, which is a slightly different energy, the call to be able to pause too. So the virus is forcing a lot of things to stop, like this crushing forward momentum, which is how systems stay in place is by just constantly sweeping you up and maintaining them. (laughs) I feel like there's an important call to both. And I don't think that's impossible. We can give some time and space 
literally and in our consciousness to both, right? So there can be moments where we respond and there can be moments where we just stop and not move on with the crushing weight of just what we know already, which is where this theme of imagination comes in. And from that being stopped, that pressure, which is what these adversity teachings are about, you know, in the the pressure of adversity, just like incredible geological formations come out of pressure, diamonds come out of pressure. From that stopping, but also in a way allowing that pressure to work. So we don't have to be stressed necessarily, but we can actually turn and just face it or be with it, relax within that pressure for a while, just to let it, let that evolution happen, the evolutionary force happen within us. So I've often been struck how wisdom arises, you know, from being on retreat with people and seeing again and again, how new insight arises, not from what we already know. It's from discovering what we didn't know we could know. So we do need those pauses as well. So I just want to say that to listeners, because I think sometimes on calls I'm with, with this activist community, you know, we kind of are helping modulate each other because it's like we have to do something. And it's like, we need to breathe this kind of being able to inhale and exhale, not hold the breath, have that rhythm in life. I'm inspired to give a shout out to the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, actually. The Buddhist Peace Fellowship has a framework called Build Block B, which I find really helpful to come back to, even just to open up the range of options and to even ask myself, oh, am I leaning too much into one and getting overly activated and what's possible? And I'm training in chaplaincy and this is Christian language, but I find it still quite potent from a Buddhist perspective. And there was a really beautiful article today in the New York Times about chaplains in New York City caring for the dying or trying to, because right now most of them don't have access to the ICUs because of the lack of uh, protection, enough protective gear to go around. The expression is they bring a ministry of presence. It's like for that kind of suffering, it's not a question of consoling or wrapping it up. in a bow and making it palatable, their intervention is presence. And sometimes that's enough and that's already a lot. The other thing is, and actually this is something of a call for support, imaginatively speaking. And I know on your podcast, there's already been some great conversation about this with Vidya Mala in particular around imaginative connection and the importance of imaginative connection. What's really up for a lot of people in New York City right now is that people are very sick in hospital, some are dying, and they're unable to be with family. And if we're in that situation, on either side of it, how do we practice? And even how do we grieve together collectively online? What does that look like when the human instinct is so often to come together, to be present to one another, to hold each other, to touch each other? How do we move beyond the limitations of this time space? How do I tap into my energy body to embrace others? And what might be possible online to hold the moment, nonetheless in ritual, even over Zoom or other technologies is a real challenge to the imagination. People still need to make meaning and mark the moment. So I'm saying that also as a call to our listeners and anybody else who might have ideas. There's like very concrete idea sharing right now around how to do that, both in terms of meditation practice and in terms of ritual. I thought that was very beautiful. Praise the Ministry of Presence. You know, something that is precisely not abstracted and does try and at least be and be with the need, even if the need is overwhelming or the suffering is very present. I have a wish for how we end this podcast that relates to that. We were talking about being able to pause. So I wonder if we could just end with a little 
practice space of just a few breaths. I think that'd be quite poignant just to end with fewer words in just a moment. For any one of us, there's people we're concerned about. It's not the only thing that needs to happen, but at least if everybody really was tending to the people, they could reach either physically or in your imagination. We could cover this world with some care, you know, especially those that are in hot spots like New York and Italy, Spain, India, and so on. Before we sit together in silence, it remains for me just to thank both Upayati and Viveka for their own ministry of presence today, for being with us, for being with you. We repeat most days that the point of this podcast is just to try and conjure, in a way, something of the experience of fellowship and community and togetherness that you may miss more and more over the weeks as we all become increasingly unmoored from our normal communities from the people we hang out with over a cup of coffee or whatever and today feels like a real exemplification of that you've both been really great witnesses to something so thank you Upayadi for your idea for making it happen and for inviting us both along to your conversation thank you Chandradasa this has been helpful for me actually to be just in good company and it just occurs to me now as we close that one of the magical gifts of this moment is that by and large, most of our centers, communities, groups have gone online and have opened doors online. So if folks listening want to practice with Triratna New York, or for that matter, with Triratna Sangha in San Francisco, our activities are posted online. Come sit with us, come breathe with us, come laugh, come weep with us. And you can find that information on the Dharma Toolkit space at thebuddhacenter.com slash toolkit. If you click on online classes, you'll see all the sanghas that are so generously making their communities available for everyone to access. And thanks too to you, Viveka, from the morning time, from my afternoon. I kind of love that about these podcasts. It's like time travel in small doses. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for everything you've brought to the conversation today. You're welcome, Chandradasa. I wanted to just encourage us what if we imagine what we've been talking about is the simplest thing to do rather than the hardest thing to do? Yeah, so that's something maybe we could be with. And in that, just ending simply with this starting from presence from which there's the best chance of what needs response to actually find a response, starting from presence. So thanks everyone for joining us all in a minute of just being here. I wanted to particularly dedicate this to a friend who is in Brooklyn. So that is another tie to New York, Brooklyn, New York. She has been in ICU for a couple of weeks now. And we just got some good news finally after a couple of days that she's beginning to respond. But there's been a beautiful online community every day sending her pictures of sunsets and words of encouragement. And you know, people aren't even sure she can hear them. So there's this tremendous need to do it anyway. And I'm going to be just spending this moment reaching her through that protective circle she's in. And I invite you to be with her and also with your folks that you are concerned about, be with yourself. And also we can reach beyond the isolation to all beings because this moment is a great potential connector for us all. So just breathing in the simplest way. <laughs> 